Hi there, this is Wafa Al-Abedat. You are listening to the Women Power Podcast, a subsidiary platform to the Women Power Summit, the largest event in MENA, with the aim of empowering women and helping them achieve their absolute highest potential. Each week on the Women Power Podcast, you will hear honest, vulnerable, authentic, real conversations from inspiring women. These women will share their experiences and stories into what it takes to build a successful business and career. The podcast will share insight and inspiration and hopefully inspire action and lead change. Azina Sabah is a producer and social entrepreneur and currently the chairperson and CEO of National Creative Industries, an organization that aids in the development and incubation of regional talent. Azain serves on a number of international foundations and boards and has made it her mission to provide a creative haven for regional storytellers and help cultivate messages of peace and reconciliation in all her undertakings. Welcome, Azain. I wanted to know more about, you know, your main role right now, which is you're the chairperson and the CEO of the National Creative Industries. What does that mean? That's a fancy title. And what does the National Creative Industries, what do they do? National Creative Industries Group um, is an organization that I uh, built about, I want to say maybe 15, 16 years ago now. Uh, But it had come through the rebranding pipeline recently. Uh, It used to be called another name um, when I built it, when I had the pleasure of founding it with uh, my co-founder, uh, but we've learned a lot since since then, and and I feel very much that in order for us to align more fully with what's happening today in the creative industries, we need to align as well with the name. So we built um, National Creative Industries Group to be an all-integrative uh, hub, uh, storytelling platform, safe haven for visual storytellers uh, in the Middle East. Uh, it's a it's a place that means very much to me, just very much because of the fact that I feel today as somebody working in this field um, that our, especially our young community has no place to go and it wants to create freely. Um, and even more importantly, uh, the collaborative system, the ecosystem that, that needs to be built in order for them to do so effectively and sustainably, as uh, in, my, in my opinion, just doesn't exist. Um, so we started National Creative Industries Group quite literally. Wafa, it's the it's the name is is what it does is in the acronym. It's Nasij, N C I G. We weave together Nensij, كل الأمور مع بعضها. Nensij ما بين الشباب اللي اللي ما حد يعني للأسف الشديد اكتشفه إلى اليوم ولازم يكتشف. ننس مع الجهات ذات الصلة من الجهات الخاصة والحكومية وغيرها ننسج ما بين الشباب نفسهم اللي قاعدين بالسرداب ما حد يدري عنهم مع اللي قاعدين above ground قاعد يشتغلون ننسج بينهم نكون هالعلاقات ننسج بين السوق الشرقي والغربي uh, نحاول نمد الجسور so that we can then be more um, I guess deliberate in the way we do business as well because at the end of the day it is a business um, and then we do that hopefully in a holistic way that can enable us to have a life cycle approach to our the products that we create as well, more important, importantly, to the uh, the creators that we work with. So I want to go back to your story um, as a creative yourself. What got you in, into journalism? You studied journalism. And then from there, how did you segue into media? So I've always been a storyteller from a very young age. I've loved 
I loved reading. I loved um, reading to myself or reading to others. I loved writing. Uh, I just loved kind of the art of the story, right? Um, but then in 1990, when the invasion happened, uh, we uh, very much found ourselves uh, ourselves overnight refugees without a home. Uh, at the time, I was in London with my siblings and my grandparents. Um, my parents were in Kuwait. They, they actually stayed throughout the duration of the invasion. And I felt hopeless and helpless. I felt uh, like my voice, not just my country, but my actual voice was robbed at the time. Uh, especially when looking at media, it was the rise of CNN and a number of other um, satellites uh, and cable uh, news networks. And I just felt that it was lacking. The narrative was lacking. Sure, some of them were subjective, um, or sorry, objective, but the majority was subjective. Um, and so it ju I just got more frustrated with time as, as, the, as the invasion went on and on. Um, I just became just more aware of the fact that our story needed to be told uh, by people that knew what was going on on the ground. Um, and, and to be able to do so effectively, I just at, the, at that time lacked the tools, right? And the skill set needed to do that. So from there, I um, took almost like an internal, pro I made an internal promise to myself that as soon as we had the opportunity to go back home, that's what I wanted to focus on. I wanted to uh, have some sort of say in the way our stories were told. And I think that the organic first step to do that was to go into journalism. Um, and so I chose that as a profession and because I was passionate about it as well. And I saw that void that needed to be that needed to be filled. What type of journalism did you focus on? You know, did you gravitate towards like a specific type? So it was investigative journalism in the beginning, uh, gravitated towards broadcast journalism. And that's how um, my professor at Boston University at the time said to me, listen, I think, you know, I think you should focus and invest more in broadcasting because there is a lack of women uh, representation when it comes to broadcast journalism. Now, when I say broadcast journalism, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to be in front of the camera. You can also be behind the camera and shape the stories actually even more effectively by being behind the camera. And that's what I was very much interested in. So uh, the opportunity came for me to intern at ABC News in New York City um, under the late Peter Jennings. Um, and I learned really very much the ins and outs of how to create content for news. And it's quite literally like creating content for a movie because you, are, you have that kind of carte blanche to pick and choose the storyline that you feel is more effective as a producer highlight that story, bring in the cast of characters that you need to reinforce that story, put it on the right network, and that's it. You, you have a game-changing situation right there, right there. So, What did you learn from your experience working with ABC and Peter Jennings? Like if you could you know, narrow it down to like one nugget of information that you t took with you to other kind of career journeys. I would say that... Um, one good thing I learned from Peter, I learned many, but one good thing I learned from Peter is that everybody has a good story. You just need to dig deep and find it. And that's absolutely something that has served me throughout my career. Um, some people just don't expose their stories to you as re readily as others, but I find that the people that don't readily, as you, I'm sure, know, Wafa, expose their stories, have the richest, deepest, just more intricate narratives you can ever imagine. 
Were your parents supportive of you choosing a journalism and investigative journalism career? And did you have to go through the cliche experience of are you going to work on Kuwait TV or, you know, kind of like that narrow vision of what you could be if you if you pick this yeah. as a as a career? Option? Of course, of course. It ha- I mean, it comes with the territory, right? It comes with the, ter- with the territory. What, you know, the fact that, first of all, you're going to go, you're going to go outside of of our area, of our neighborhood, of Kuwait, of our community to go to school. And then what are you going to do with that, really? What is that, first of all, and what are you going to do with that, right? Um, the fact that you're going you're going outside Kuwait, what, then why aren't you a doctor or a lawyer, right? If that's what you're going to do, what what is journalism? And, and how, why is that important? Um, and exactly, where are you going to work when you come home? Um, of course, all questions that were asked. But as soon as I was there and as soon as they were seeing the work that I was doing, especially as soon as I went to ABC News, they get they got it. They just got it. They said, we know we understand now why you're doing this. The fact that they were inside Kuwait during the invasion reinforced this even further because they saw firsthand how how I was working quite literally at molding stories, stories that I could have been molding had I been there during the war. So they, they got it. They got it. Um, and then, you know, and that, yes, I did come home and I eventually w- did work at KTV. <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned a lot. Um, so that was part of the, the tri- you know, that was part of the, the journey that I had to say. Journey is being diplomatic. It must have been a culture shock uh, going from <laughs> like a huge uh, U.S. based network to a local uh, station. What was that like for you? jolting um it was um comedic at times i i always like to see the comedy in situations um i found that i learned so much from the kuwait tv experience because i understood what gaps meant and how to fill them more effectively through the kuwait university uh, kuwait sorry tv experience and then i got to also work at kuwait tv with a number of kuwait university students that then became now my colleagues at work so You know, so I met this this whole ecosystem that I had no idea existed of people that were in the in the in the journalism trenches and who wanted really for the some some of our very, very important stories to come to light. So it was it was there were pros and cons as as, you know, life, you know, tends to tends to happen in life. But um, I remember those days at uh, KTV quite quite fondly for many people who, you know, study abroad and come back to serve their countries and work in public service, they struggle to get motivated after a while, right? Because there's a very bureaucratic system in place. It doesn't necessarily reward the ambitious. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very over, it's very oversaturated, it's crowded, it's hard to be seen and heard. Um, which is why you got into this to begin with. How did you stay motivated in your time there? And then how did you transition out into into like the, the next step in your career? So, um, yeah, the, 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 the way I kind of transitioned was almost like I stumbled into public service, I should say. I, I It was the hardest decision of my life to leave the private sector and, and go into the public sector. I'm not, I you know, I have to be clear here it wasn't like oh i am going to go save the world and i am going to go now and and lay down the the law no it was <laughs> it was very much not that 
um, it was an opportunity that came came to me because I was working with the youth at the time within my studio, within my uh, production company. And I had very much so spent years cultivating this relationship with the larger community, right? Something that I've always been very proud of. And so I knew them, I knew them well, and they knew me and, and I knew how to, how it felt to be them, to deal with all the red tape and the bureaucracy and the lack of, of leniency and the lack of imagination and creativity when it comes, especially if you're working as a, as a young man or woman in, in the field of production. And I understood, you know, all the, all the insanity of, of, of paperwork that needs to happen if you want to build your own business, if you're an entrepreneur. So I understood that. I understood it because I lived it. It was me. I knew it well. Um, and I was never one to shy away from challenges. I actually, very much my my family always likes to tell me that they call me the firefighter because I tend to run run towards the fire and that's just something intrinsic in me I don't know where I got it I don't know if I like it but it is me and I've I've learned to embrace it right um so I uh, was given this opportunity to serve on a committee that was that was charged with building the strategy um for the new uh ministry of state for youth affairs so I was one of 12 uh people on that committee charged with this, with this huge responsibility. And we had a couple of months to build the strategy and to test it. And so I took, you know, I was very much enjoying the process of doing that. And I dived right in and I built a strategy along with my colleagues that I felt spoke to me and spoke to, to people uh, that shared the same experiences as I did as a young Kuwaiti woman, period. That's it. Um, and so I was ready to go home. I had packed my bags the day we submitted the strategy. We had the press conference. We met all the press. We, you know, we had this whole um, kind of presentation. And then I, I went home and then I got a call um, from uh, you know, my boss at the time telling me in, in government, telling me who led the committee, saying that, listen, um, and I give him credit for this. We need we need women to take the lead on this. We need a woman to take the lead on this because this process, this this process of building this startup government agency requires patience. It requires, requires a lot of nurturing. Um, and it, and it requires foresight. And the fact that he saw these things in a woman for me is exceptional in and of itself, right? Because the, 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 the choices are immense. And there's so many incredible men that could have taken on that young men that could have taken on that challenge and young women. But the fact that that position was offered to me, for me, that meant a lot, first of all, to entrust me with such an incredible responsibility, mental, meant a lot. The fact that I, I then stepped up and went into the government position was, this was the question that I had to ask myself. Was I willing to quite literally give up everything I've worked for all my life? And it was quite literally giving up because that's it. You sign, you sign your paper into government, that's it. You disown yourself from everything else that you've done in the past. You take yourself completely out of your circle, your 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 former circle of, of the creative, free thinking, um, kind of rule breaking circle. I spent years building um, blood, sweat, and tears um, went into the building formation uh, of that of that business, but I had to let it go because there was at that time something that needed me more, right? Um, and. Wafa, you should know this. The day I signed my resignation from my company, my private company, um, was the same day I signed the approval to build the world-class studio 
that I had always dreamed of building so that the company can go on and, and, and start to build this uh, multimedia facility that will hopefully go on to nurture lots of young visual storytellers in our part of the world. So it was a big, it was a big kind of uh, emotional, I guess, um, period for me just because of that the understanding that things are so transient and you're never meant to stay in one place for too long. You do as much as you can, you can, given the resources you have, the skills sets you have, the time, and then you move on. You give way for others to follow or to do even better than you. So, so did you continue your private company while you worked in government or did you forego your, your company? No, so because my company is a shareholding company, um, it's, uh, you know, I was chairman, I was chairman and CEO. And so we had, they had, the, the board needed to elect a new chairman and CEO. Uh, and I was I, I resigned, of course, uh, as per the rules and regulations of any public uh, service, uh, any servant that's going into public servant uh, service. Sorry, that needs that needs to happen intrinsically. Um, and so, yeah, I let go of everything. So all the projects that I had in the pipeline, everything had to be let go for me to take on this new adventure. And it was an adventure, I must say, is something that I will always cherish for the rest of my life. Uh, my years in public service, I spent six years um, building uh, the Ministry of State for Youth Affairs with my incredible team, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. What do they not prepare you for 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 a role in government as an as an undersecretary at a ministry? I should say, what don't they prepare you for as a woman working in government in the public sector? So, you know, we've always been brought up to listen which is a fantastic virtue. Like, listen, absolutely listen, absorb, listen, absorb. But I find in public service, especially when things are so time sensitive, and at the time I joined the government, we in Kuwait, we had, a, we had a, lots of turbulence on the ground here when it came to how our youth were being treated. There were so many rights that they unfortunately weren't um, privy to or they weren't able to tap into. Um, there were many things that were happening that we were, we were we were just very unhappy with. So we didn't have the luxury of time to say, listen, let's let's take a step back and listen because we've listened enough at that point, right? Um, so it, for me, coming into public service as a woman, the first natural thing for me to do would have been to do the same thing as you know the way I was brought up and the way that I see other women leaders taking on jobs inside public service to listen, to step back and listen to mediate and to listen. I found that that was not helpful at all in the beginning. I felt that I had to, and I, I tried to in the beginning, just listen, step back and listen. But I felt the more I gave opportunities to for the, 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 the space in front of me to expand with more words, um, and many of the words were quite redundant, the more I was wasting time. So I felt I had to dig deep, and real quick, I needed to uh, pull up my sleeves and listen internally before I can activate any sort of action moving forward. But that took that didn't take much time because I knew why I was there. I knew what I what I was asked to do. I knew that I was there. I I was I was given this incredible responsibility to have the the voices of the youth be heard inside the public sector. So. There was no time. I found myself within week two, I was there. I was vocal. I was open. 
I was receiving and I was listening at the same time, but more so wanting to make sure that I identified key um, words that we can use as calls of action that everybody can can kind of mobilize around because at that time that's what that's what was needed i can't say that's what's needed now but at that time that's what uh, was needed and that's what i had to do so remaining quiet or listening is absolutely a virtue however sometimes listening to yourself is actually just more meaningful than listening to what other people tell you you should be doing and that's what i should have done from day one listening to myself and taking action on that account you know, I feel like a lot of the time is we are on the outside looking into government and we just complain about all the things that are going wrong or we just it's it's easier for us to sit and criticize and just hold others accountable. But I, I also having worked with organizations or having worked with teams on the internal side of these really old institutions it can be really overwhelming because you want to do so much. You have, you know, a limited time to prove yourself. You're also dealing with a lot of, there's a lot of things stacked against you. You know, how do you deal with being overwhelmed when you get into these positions of influence? For, you have to admit to yourself that you're overwhelmed because a lot of us just keep going. That's, I think that's just, just to be aware of the fact that you're overwhelmed. That's that and in and of itself is a huge success, honestly, because we keep, I find so many, for myself, for instance, I find that I push myself a lot and that can jeopardize even the, the types of decisions I can make moving forward. If I don't take a step back and say, oh, well, hold on, hold on. Let's take, let's, let's have a minute here. Let's breathe. Let's, re, you know, let's start to recollect where we are, uh, build up our, our, our kind of mobilize and build up our resources again and move forward. So the idea first is to understand so it's a long-term kind of process, right? I, I'm very much against that concept of success in private sector rather than mastery of the private sector. And by the way, I, 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 I use those variables also in, in the work, my work in the creative field as well. There's no such, for me, the way I operate is I don't look to success. I look at mastery. Success is transient and it's fleeting. Mastery is very long-term and you're always kind of, in, you live in honor of the, of the curve as long as the curve keeps going up. Right. Um, and so you have to you pace yourself. You have to understand that um, if there is an old system there, yes, it will be incredibly difficult to break it down and build it up. But you have to start looking for the cracks in the wall and you build on those cracks on the wall, because those are the cracks that are going to at the end of the day, allow you to penetrate and allow you to build something more effective below ground and do that in a holistic way that will survive the test of time. Because I was I had the. The, the luxury of building an agency from scratch. I didn't have to deal as much as my other, my colleagues did with, with working from, you know, working from old structures. So I had that luxury of building from scratch, of building an, a framework of strategic legislative, um, you know, framework from scratch. And so, and then had also the young men and women, the teams that were, were there and I was able to tap into to, to support me. That's not always the case um, in other government agencies or in, in any stagnant organizations, whether it be government or, or, or private. But I always say I always say that I always look to to mastering the situation, whether it be uh, by angling yourself so that you maneuver yourself properly. Um, and that allows you to kind of bypass much of the, you know, 
much of the, the, the unpleasantness that comes with working with an older establishment. Um, and then sometimes you just have to kind of be the ultimate, um, the ultimate psychiatrist and have the, the other end understand that you're there and you're listening and you're comprehending what they're saying. But now that, you know, that you've comprehended and digested, then you have something else to tell them and they have to, you know, and then you kind of maneuver your way forward with them using words and actions rather than any kind of force, um, because nothing forced, as you know, uh, will sustain. Uh, and it's, it's never healthy for an organization to feel forced in any way, shape or form. So uh, long story short, um, again, it's about, it's about the long, long, long-term play. It's about mastery rather than just uh, transient success. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen happen to young people in the, you know, in the time that you've been doing this? Have you seen any drastic changes occur in their behavior or their problems? I saw an, uh, an 180 change in, in young men and women in Kuwait and in the larger Arab League, by the way, because we used to work also with the Arab League while I was, while I was in, in service. Um, the fact that we had a government agency that was built for them, by them, that in and of itself was powerful. It was a, a place for them to come and feel heard and be seen and understand fully that we probably saw them more than they saw themselves. Why is that? Because um, we looked at them from a whole, the whole kind of um, wholehearted approach rather than just you as an entrepreneur, you as a mother, you as a you know volunteer worker. So we kind of went through the whole scale of what, of what possibly um, could amount to a healthy, um, creative uh, future leader, right? And that's how we tr- that's how we uh, looked at each one of our young men and women, whether they worked inside the ministry or they were part of the larger youth community. That's how we faced them. And so I found very much so that within the the first few months, that there was this energy, there's this feeling of hope, of pride, uh, of place, really pride of place, of 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 knowing that there was something out there for them. And it was waiting for them. All they had to do was allow themselves to be part of the process. Um, and so, yes, I, I felt that. And on the Arab League as well, once uh, Kuwait was able to uh, travel and 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 visit uh, delegates from all over the the Arab League, we were also able to uh, embed those principles that we hold so dear here in Kuwait: uh, principles of entrepreneurship, of creativity, of risk taking. Um, and really also a failure as a virtue as well, by the way. And that's something that, that I, th- I think is more important than anything else, really. I want to talk about youth and arts and just maybe the creative scene generally in Kuwait. What have you seen change in the last 10 years in this space? So, um, as you know, Afa, Kuwait has always been a super creative country, right? So Kuwait has always been ground zero for creativity when it comes to uh, innovation and, and entrepreneurship. And when it comes to creativity, creativity in all its kind of, just in all, um, its incredible forms. Um, more, more recently, maybe I found that there is this new, I call it the hum. There's a hum. Like I feel a hum uh, happening and I've been feeling it just getting louder and louder with time in Kuwait. This hum of just this energy that is, 
it's almost like this frequency of of just challenging. It's a challenging hum. It's a hum that is persistent. That is just so incredibly um, melodic and 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 harmonious at the same time. But it brings with it this promise of new things. And I feel like there's a huge a huge rebirth happening in Kuwait uh, within the creative community at large um, across all eleven sectors of the of the creative community. And I think. It's happening because it's real and it's organic and it's soulful and it's happening from a grassroots level. And that's why I have complete faith in its resiliency and its its um, sustainability moving forward. Is it possible for the creative scene to flourish without having the right ecosystem? I know that for an industry to flourish, you need everyone to be working collaboratively to support the space. Like, you know, we need to have the best schools. We need to have a strategy. We need to have funding. We need to have um, spaces. We need to have grants. Um, and not all of those elements exist in the region. We have like an, a vision of it and an outlook of it. And we have the talent. We have all these people, a lot of them traveling on their own dime, investing and building a, a space, building a career in the creative space. But when we come back, it doesn't mean that there is like an infrastructure to host us. You know, is it possible today to have a flourishing career in the in the creative space? Let me give you the, the short answer is no. You do need to sustain a creative economy or a creative community or a creative um, that hum to sustain that hum. Yes, you do need an ecosystem that is able to uh, not just allow for collaborations, obviously, but also to build the legislative, financial, administrative framework needed to, to effectively allow your creatives to thrive, right? So it's about either, you know, it's not, a, they shouldn't just be allowed to survive at this point, because that's what's happening right now. And I, don't, I think I speak on, you know, I speak on just, it's not just a Kuwaiti story. You know, it's a story that we're seeing all over the Arab world. Our creatives, yes, they're striving or they're and they're surviving, but they can't be they can't thrive unless there is some sort of mechanism, some 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 almost, you know, um, embryotic ecosystem that allows them to do so in a way that is clear and uh, provides for accountability and uh, provides for transparency Um and, um, you know, consistency as well. So that needs to happen. Of course, education comes hand in hand with creativity. But I, I also argue here that I think, in my, in my opinion, that create, we're born creative. Now, unfortunately, what I'm seeing is we lose our creative kind of um, scale the, 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 um, the older we get. So, um, you know, our kind of our creative levels, our imagination levels decrease as we get older. So the, the trick here is how can we really tap into the source of creativity, our kids, our babies, and nurture them in a way that is incredibly, um, uh, you know, loving and compassionate and and um, and and multifaceted and and in a way that will allow them to grow into creative, imaginative, game changing, risk taking. Um, young kids and then young men and women, et cetera, et cetera. So this is the, this is the challenge in, in our larger community, in the larger Arab community. It's a huge challenge because as you see, Wafa, creativity, un unfortunately, isn't 
uh, isn't a um, a commodity, isn't seen as a, as a valued commodity in our part of the world yet. However, I do have faith that um, many um, many now are starting to understand its its poeticism and its power at the same time, its financial power and its social power, and economic, of course, power. So if we have someone from around the region listening to this podcast right now, they are aspiring filmmakers, writers, artists, fashion designers, what would be, and I know it differs based on career uh, choice, uh, but if they wanted to monetize, if they wanted to be in the creative space full time, how do you suggest they go about it? Should they be taking business courses, starting companies, finding jobs? How do they make a living out of creativity? I don't think you can make a living out of creativity unless you're authentic. First with yourself and true to yourself. What do you like to do? Find your purpose. And I know this sounds so, my God, preachy, right? And I don't mean to sound preachy, but I promise you, I promise you, unless you understand what you, what makes you happy, Forget the word purpose. What makes you happy? What makes you sing? Want to sing? What makes you want to dance? What makes you um, want to get up in the morning, right? Unless you find that, and that translates eventually into some sort of purpose for you or purpose-driven pathway for you, by the way. So you start there. And, and if, and you know, nine out of 10, whatever you choose that makes you happy is probably going to fall under the creative field in some way, shape, or form, right? Because creativity is, is all immersive. And it's so diverse and it's ever changing and it's dynamic. So find that first and then start to look and then start to reverse engineer that, right? Where do I want, where do I want to be moving down in our, in my, my journey of mastery? I don't want to call it journey of success. In my journey of mastery, where do I want to land at that, you know, at, throughout like the, the, the curvatures of my journey? And what do I need to do today to get there? And based on that, then you start to, you start to, to, I guess, plan your, um, your strategy. Now, I don't, I don't want to sound, I don't want to overwhelm anybody. You know, I I think it has to start with baby steps. So if you feel like you may like film, you like, may like film production, right? Why not volunteer on a film set, right? Why not understand the, the, the kind of the backstage story of how to build, build films by holding, being a gaffer on set, um, just volunteering to 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 help the, the director, etc. You'd be surprised how tiny little things like this can open a world of possibilities. So I always say, especially to to young men and women around me, volunteerism is a great thing because there you discover not just yourself, but you also have the the, the you know the the privilege of helping others as well in the process. Um, and then moving from there, start to um, understand what kind of people you like to surround yourself with. If you're not very much a social person then I wouldn't surround myself, I, I wouldn't want to be director or I wouldn't want to be a producer because you're going to be around a lot of people every day, right? Um, if, you're, if you'd rather just kind of, uh, you, like, you, you like taking the time to, or you're more than, more than anything else, you like being by yourself and, and maybe enjoying um, some, some, some slow, um, silent kind of creative, creative um, ventures, then I would look at perhaps uh, being a graphic designer. Right. So it just, it's kind of like, what do you, what, what calls, what calls you? And then how do you get there after that? But the, the, the key question here, the, the, and the problem that I see with lots of our creatives that actually come into this field thinking they want to be something and investing so much time and energy and, and money. And then 
coming to the end of the road and saying, oh my goodness, I, you know, that's absolutely not what I want to be. That all is built on the fact that they never actually sat down with themselves and asked themselves the hard questions. When you ask themselves, you ask yourself, when you ask yourself, what makes me happy? What drives me? What, what gets me out of bed in the morning? This eventually will allow you, yes, to get to that next step that you need to get to. But um, I think I think lots of people just uh, they take that very simple step uh, for granted, unfortunately. I got asked that question when I was 26, like, what is my personal mission statement? And it's more like, what is your compass? Like, we have we have business mission statements and we work with companies that have a mission statement. But what is our, our human mission statement? And I feel like we're all built so differently. Like, what makes me different than you is my secret sauce. Like, God has designed me in a very specific way. And I'm meant to offer something to, you know, to the world that's different than anybody else. And just tapping into that is like a lifelong quest. And I feel like if somebody asked me those questions earlier, I would have probably been doing stuff like this 10, 15 years ago instead of just for the last couple of years. So it is a process and a journey, but you're absolutely right in saying, find your compass. And then that comes from like a higher purpose. So your work is authentic. It gives you energy. It replenishes you. Uh, you know, you never get, you know, tired or from it because you you love it. it. It's helping you grow, and and you're also serving other people. Um, and I love the part about reverse engineering uh, because I feel like you know, figure out the salary of your dreams and then work it backwards. How much projects you have to do? How much freelancing work do you have to do? How much? How many clients and customers do you need um, to be able to? have you know everyone wants to go into the creative space or or maybe they're passionate about it but then they don't work it back from the amount of money they need to make to you know live the life that they want but also do what they love so it's like a bit of a formula and i i don't know if i mean i feel and i'm sure you you agree with this but i feel i find that the more people you take with you on your journey um the more incredibly fulfilling it'll be for you you know uh, it can't be, you can't, you can't think it's about you. It's actually never about you. It's about what you can give. Good for you. We know that you're, you're bright. We know that you're creative, but really it's not going to matter unless what you're doing is giving back to your community around you. And, and it has to happen throughout this process of growth that you're going through, right? This whole journey of growth needs to very much align with what's happening around you. And you need to be very mindful um of that i think you know this is something i tell my own daughter it's great she wants to be an architect and she loves architecture but why do you want to be an architect? asking yourself why you want to be an architect is is very it's critical to your sustainability in that field right especially when the times get tough and they do get tough i want to talk about your production work you know you co-produce america and also journey to mecca can you tell me more about those stories and how you brought them to life I think there's a common thread now that you, you're, there's a common thread in everything I choose to, to kind of produce or to, to, to uh, be a part of. And I think it's all about um, stories that pertain to our identity as human beings. And then also that, um, that weave together the tapestries of, of what it means um, to be from another world, right? Quote, unquote, a world that people perhaps don't understand as, as, as much as we'd like them to understand. And it's all about really uh, 
that that quest to to build the bridges that need to be built to to have that communication that needs to be to be had and journey to mecca for instance came to be um many years ago when uh, after 9/11 a couple of years after 9/11 we found that there was obviously this whole this whole islamophobia uh, phenomena happening unfortunately still there today however it was it was very it was it was very pertinent at the time and and i was um i was in the us at the time and and a number of um filmmakers and i were sat around and you know we were having these fireside chats and they said listen we need to put together a project that can resonate with with everyone from from any kind of background any religion etc and so um there was a team that had this idea to have to 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 make this film about about uh, the pilgrimage to hajj uh, and they wanted to uh focus more on Ibn Battuta as a historical character uh, during the 13th you know 13th century and his own quest uh, into Hajj and that that for me spoke because it was a human story at the end of the day it wasn't about just you know this religion this Islam is incredible no it was this very indirect way to showcase um a man's struggle within the larger context of of a religion that he held very close to his heart um and so we when we went to investors initially you know when we built the story and went to investors nobody came on board wafa it was we hit a we hit wall after wall after wall like every wall that we kind of by some miracle surpassed there was a a, lot, a higher wall after it so we spent 5 years um trying to fund that film you'd think that after 911 people you know especially from our part of the world would want our stories to be heard but that wasn't the case we spent we spent a long time um you know that one of the advocates for this film that kind of that jump started this project was actually the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama told our producers, he said, "Listen, if there was ever a time for Islam, a story about Islam, it's now. It's now or never, guys. You you need to do this." And so that was the that was that kind of really initiated the project and we were able from then to get the financing needed and we spent um a couple of years in Saudi uh developing um and building um and then we actually ended up um you know because we're shooting in Mecca uh and and our and our crew was was uh they're non-muslim so we ended up which is the, for me the best part of the whole process we ended up um recruiting uh muslim young muslim filmmakers cinematographers um sound guys and training them quite literally on the border of 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 Mecca um training them on huge IMAX cameras because it was an IMAX film for them to go across the border and then be able to partake in that Hajj season because that we actually shot it on the ground during Hajj. So it was all the men that you saw or all the footage, excuse me, that you saw on the ground there was was taken by young um Islam, Muslim cinematographers. Um that for me was that's what made the project just just incredibly fulfilling. Um that and also we got the first aerial shot of uh of the Grand Mosque uh you know through a helicopter that uh the government of Saudi was kind enough to lend lend us so it was just an epic journey on all fronts because shooting inside Hajj in inside in Mecca during Hajj and then also shooting the desert scenes in uh, in Al Maghrib all around the deserts of Morocco it was i mean it was a dream come true and and i'm glad that through you know through post production and production we were able to garner the media attention that we needed to also be able to host um workshop on you know islamic awareness workshops and and coexistence and 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 you know communication when it comes to all religions on that front as well so that was uh, 
that was a bonus for me. What an endeavor. I can't imagine five years of fundraising. What happened to these shows now? Are they on a streaming platform? How can someone watch them? So Journey to Mecca, because it's an IMAX film, uh, it shows in different IMAX theaters around the world. So I don't rec- I know in Kuwait, it showed until uh, a few months ago. I know in London, it was showing, of course, pre-COVID. I have no idea what's happening now. Um, so it shows in IMAX theaters. We did then translate it to 35 millimeter. And I think it's gets it now it's actually being sold. You can find it on Amazon. Amazon Prime, I believe, also carries it. Um, so, yeah. What was in it for you? What, you know, I understand the purpose behind it and why it moved you and, and why this was important as part of your personal mission. But, you know, what else motivated you about this project? Was there any financial gain for you? Any, you know, great press? You know, did it lead to anything else that was exciting or new projects that you're working on right now? Uh, for me, it it was a gateway uh, for me to come into this kind of production, this, this, this production of historical, epi- you know, historical documentary series more, I should say. So it, it, for me, it was very, I was very much attracted to that world because coming out of news, it was a very uh, natural way for me to, to evolve uh, in production. Um, it was a um, emotional investment on my part. Oh, sorry, something. So for me, it was an emotional investment. It was a financial investment. It was a learning experience. Um, it was a dream come true. And I think I, I, it was like I went to school again, right? So I learned everything from scratch. Uh, you know, I went to school for film. I know this. I know film. I thought I did until I made Journey to Mecca with the team. And that was a whole different ballgame. So um, if, it was, if it was one thing, it was the... the the privilege of bringing this story to life, one, and then a close second would be just the incredible knowledge that I gained from that process. Kuwait was named the Arab capital of youth in 2017 as a result of your contribution to the youth infrastructure. Um, obviously, you had this amazing, incredible, you know, you co-produced these these films, you know, do you feel like you've peaked in your career? Like, what's next for you? I will never feel like I peaked. I always feel like I'm I'm just... This is the thing, again, this is the thing about the quest for mastery rather than success. I There's no barometer for success. It doesn't exist for me. Like, for me personally, it doesn't exist. I see it, you know, in, my, in people around me, in my community, but it doesn't exist for me. So I really don't know how to gauge that. I only know that I keep growing. Unless I feel like I keep growing, that I'm growing, I feel like I am being de- detrimental to myself and to my community. And that, that is just the honest truth. I, I just cannot, by the way, even part of this growth can be failure, by the way. So I embrace it fully. Because Wafa, you need to know this. I am a, let me see, a recovering perfectionist, I should say. So um, it's all—it's always like I have to. That's the—that's the ultimate battle here: how to overcome <laughs> my own kind of feeling of always have to having to be the best or the the most perfect, or you know. So for me, that's that's it's just such an exciting journey, and it is that what I call, you know, it is that it's the journey of mastery that I keep that I keep talking about. I know I I, I speak maybe you know on behalf of many people today that 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 are super successful, but they still don't feel fulfilled, you know? 
and they always they still they still keep looking for the next best thing. And for me, I I'm past that. I I just feel like not. I just feel like there's you know success is great if you get it, and I would be blessed to have it any day of the week. However, I feel like mastery and resilience and sustainability um, and flow um, and failure um, are all blessings. All blessings. So if I can have them, that's the if, if I can have that wave, I'll ride that one forever. I like to end all my podcasts with the same question, which is, what do you feel is your superpower? So I feel maybe I should say my superpower. I think is my authenticity. I feel authentic. You know, being authentic isn't given the 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 stage uh, space that it deserves. Um, I think um, for me personally, um, my authenticity has always been my guiding star. It's been my true north. Um, it's allowed me to navigate sometimes without GPS. Uh, in some, actually, in most cases, without GPS, uh, it's allowed me to navigate in business and in, and later in government. Um, and it lives at really the epicenter of my identity and my my integrity as a as a human being. Um, so yeah, I, I think authenticity is my superpower. I'm very great, grateful to have it shine through and guide me uh, every day. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Woman Power Podcast. And thank you for downloading and streaming our podcast every week. If you love what you've heard, tag us on Instagram and follow the Woman Power Podcast and Woman Power Summit account for more information on our next episode. Please leave a rating review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps other women discover the show. That's it from me. See you next week.